Membership fees apply after free trial. Cancel any time. Can I be real for a second? That goal you have to exercise and eat better, you really can do it. But nobody is going to do it for you. And nobody has to because you can do it if you have the right tools and a community that cares about helping you get results. And that's us, Beachbody. It's as convenient as your TV or laptop, but you need to decide that you're worth it. Let us help you succeed. Here's how. Go to Beachbody.com to claim your free membership and start feeling great. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Garden Gossip, the home and garden show, with your hosts, Lisa and Nancy, editors of BigBlendMagazine.com. So this is what we do. We go from the blues to gardening. I like this. And wine. We've got wine in hand. It is a Friday. And we're excited because Nancy Lawson is joining us. She is the author of The Humane Gardener, Nurturing a Backyard Habitat for Wildlife. It's published by Princeton, uh, Princeton Architectural Press. And she is a master naturalist and a master gardener. And she speaks and writes about humane gardening, which is super cool because everything matters. You know, every leaf matters. Every seed pod matters, every ladybug matters, every butterfly matters, and her book really talks about that, and, it, and it's so important right now uh, to look at how we can create habitats for backyard, like backyard habitats, and even if it's in a balcony or a patio, uh, to do what we can. Now, she is also the founder of Humane Gardener, which is an outreach initiative dedicated to cultivating compassion for all creatures, great and small, through animal-friendly, environmentally sensitive landscaping methods. And so we're really happy to have her join us on Big Blend Radio today to talk about her book, Humane Gardening Practices, Birds, Ladybugs, you name it. So go to her website, humanegardener.com. Her book is obviously on Amazon, all those great places too. But she's also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Pinterest. Nancy, welcome to the show. How are you? Hi, good. How are you? Thanks for having me. Hey, we're really excited to have you on the show. And, you know, it's like, so we talked about music on the show today. We've got the blues. We've got wine. Um, so are we really allowed to grow grapes in our backyard? That's important. <laughs> <laughs> yes, in fact, um, grape vines are good for leafcutter bees, um, which I was going to talk about. And uh, so you can get, yeah, and they, they won't hurt the um, they won't hurt the grapevine, but they what they do is cut little um, pieces out, little circle shaped pieces out of the leaves, and then they line their nest with them. And they're a really common um, native bee. There's a bunch of different uh, leafcutter bee species, and um, they they make these little um, nests in holes in wood and brick and um, any little cavity that they can find and seal it up with pollen and nectar. And, and then they, um, after they do all that hard work, they generally die after that. So I, I really wow. like to celebrate these little hardworking moms who, you know, um, who are making way for the next generation. And uh, a lot of people think holes and leaves are damage to their plants, but that's a really good example of, um, why we should think a little bit more beyond, um, beyond, uh, you know, just thinking about the aesthetics initially of a, of something happening in the garden. So that's a long answer to yes, you should grow grapevines, not just for the wild ones. <laughs> I, I like too. <laughs> but there's also wild ones, you know, because on the hikes we see these, you know, I, we see, especially in California, we saw mm. like the wild grapes. There's like wild grapevines, and Tiny. it's so cool <laughs> yeah. to see them, you know, growing from around trees and. You know, around yes. the, along the bushes, it's so cool to see how they grow in the wild versus what we do, you know. And we yeah, try to is. manicure everything. And when they're wild, it's like, we you know, when berries and blackberries and everything and huckleberries go wild, it's like, we know what we're doing. We know where we need to grow. You don't. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. Yep. It's an, it's, I've let a bunch an, grow in different places in my yard, actually. That's the, and I love that you talk about, the little bugs and things, because I think that it's something we forget that nature is, has this wide web. I mean, it's like the circle of life is so mm. big and all of these little bugs are part of something. And, right. you know, when you look at humane gardening and think it's, it's really about letting nature be nature. And I always wonder about what we do when we decide to manage everything. It's kind of, right. like, who do we think we are? <laughs> 
Yeah. Well, when you're, it was interesting. There's a there's a nice little theme of this day's radio show because your first guest, Allison, mentioned how music, um, you know, helps you look at things from other people's perspectives, which is so true mm-hmm. and makes you think differently. And that's exactly what I talk about when I when I give talks or or talk to people about human gardening, um, is that. It's about looking at your landscape from other species' perspectives and mm. challenging yourself to think differently um, beyond how we're marketed to. And um, and mm. the idea that there's there's somebody using every layer of the landscape. There's somebody in the ground. There's somebody under the leaves if you leave your fallen leaves or your other organic materials, depending on where you live. And um there's somebody in the middle mm-hmm. shrub layers, which are often lacking in a lot of landscapes now. They just have trees and, you know, turf grass mm-hmm. or rock. So, mm-hmm. yeah. It, there's little neighborhoods. That's kind of how I look at it. And reading your yes. book, by the way, Humane Gardener, is so well written. And it's it's like reading someone's journal in a way of, like, discovery of things. And then you've got int- interviews with different people and uh, and experts and you know, just make it. It's just a very easy book to read and and good book Thank to read. You. It's not this typical. You must do this book, you know, in the garden right. books. Like you, <laughs> in this right. zone and, and that. I find that pretty. I it it would be challenging and, and a mistake to be overly prescript, prescriptive because mm-hmm. the thing is that every site is different. It's not just that every region is different, um, but every place is different, and I think. Mm-hmm. Too often we'll go in and and sort of put our commands on the landscape instead of watching to see, well, what happens if I just leave it there for leave a little it. while? What's going to come up and who's going to visit? And you really learn a lot from, from you know, just watching nature for a bit and letting it take its course. I remember a gentleman who was on our show, this is about, I'm going to say eight years ago, and I actually think he's based out here in Tucson. We should look him up. Um, I, and I, I've got to look him up. He, he's a writer, but a, a biologist and a, an ecologist. And he had written a book that was about this parcel of land out in New Mexico. I want to say it's Otay Mesa or something. It, this was a while ago. And they were trying to – and they had a really good governor at the time that was also really, like, into saving the land. And it was – they were fighting against an oil company coming in and plowing mm. this land up. And, you know, it's like the Chihuahuan Desert, the Sonoran Desert is an incredibly diverse place. Mm-hmm. I mean, right now we have, like, all the swamps are filling up and the frogs are coming out. And, and mm-hmm. it's just you wouldn't think that would be in the desert, but that's how it yeah. is if you right. let nature go. And he was talking about this being such a diverse area in New Mexico and very similar to what we have in the Sonoran Desert. But he also, he said from going out in the wilds, and then going back in his garden, he went and did a lot of photography. And, you know, people think, again, the desert, there's that general belief that we're just a, I, I call it a big sand, sand bank with gumby cactus. You know, we're beyond that. There's more. <laughs> the gumby cactus <laughs> are cool. But he started to see the different seasons. And in places like the Sonoran Desert, we actually have five seasons. We don't have four. We have five. And we have more than winter and summer. We have mm-hmm. five, and it's really interesting because of the monsoon is a different summer than the dry summer that we just had. Mm-hmm. And so he was talking about this happening, and from going out and photographing, he, he changed what he was doing in his garden to mimic what nature was doing. And normally people go out, and after the monsoons, all the grasses start to grow, which are so important to our landscape. And normally people start pulling them. They mulch. Out here they mulch with rocks, which is terrible, this gravel. Yeah. Nancy oh, Nancy yeah, has it. a thing about it. So but he dumb. said when he yeah. left everything, and he was so busy and everything with this project, he said, you know, let me just let nature and see what happens. Mm. He said the cactus thrived. He had more wildlife in his backyard. Mm. Suddenly he had quail and quail babies. And, like, his cactus didn't get that big burn on it that you get when you start putting mulch, which your mulch out here, again, is gravel, so then your cactus burns and everything burns. And yeah. so he was talking about just leaving it. And he he was like, oh, my gosh, I have an oasis. My desert turned into an oasis just from mm-hmm. leaving yeah. it alone. That, to me, is incredible. Yeah, you know, and that's – oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Nancy. Go ahead. I was going to say – 
there's there's this compulsion, and again, it goes back to marketing and um, and an obsession in most areas of the country with turf grass, even even parts of Arizona. Um, mm-hmm. But there's there's this compulsion to get rid of whatever's in the whatever's naturally in the ground layer, and um, so that's why uh, you know a lot of ecological um, gardeners and designers. Uh, are advocating for this green mulch concept, which is using what's naturally there, like what you're talking about, what comes after the rains, and not smothering everything over, because not only are you taking away habitat for little ground-dwelling birds, um, but also um, ground ground nesting bees, which are 70% of our mm. native bees. Um, and they're not, they're not scary. People are scared when you say they're in the ground and think that they're yellow jackets, but they're actually, they don't sting. They're solitary, um, species. And when you're putting down shredded wood mulch or you're putting down rock, you're just taking away all those little homes for those animals. Wow. You know, one of the other things that, especially we know because we live out in the desert and we've lived in a couple desert areas where when we do get rains, um, there tends to be floods, and there's floods because what we call mulch, gravel, or even the bark chips, just floats on down the river, and there's mm-hmm. no roots from plants because you don't have very many because you didn't make it possible. Mm-hmm. Um, it raises the temperature when you use gravel, number one, and you have no structure, root structure, plants to hold the soil in, which is why exactly. when we have floods, there goes half the topsoil, and, you know, the whole landscape changes. You know, yep. if the desert's left alone, it has plants at different heights for reasons, because there's different, and I was going to say people, people think I'm nuts, but I, I call them people because they're living creatures. Yeah, that would be the word today. I uh, know. <laughs> You've people, already talked about whatever. aliens. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> you know, at different heights, because different animals eat at different heights, and and we need them all to keep the whole thing working. When you yeah. put gravel in, I mean, the like when I come outside and you walk down our neighborhood, those with gravel are 10 degrees hotter than those without. You can put your mm-hmm. hand over the gravel, and you can feel this intense heat. Mm-hmm. So if you're trying to stay cool, you don't do it. And the other thing is the lawn on the on the circular drive with the lawn, and it's usually on the slope and at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, no matter what. Here goes all the automatic sprinklers, and the water's running down the street. It's like, mm-hmm. it's, yeah. come on. I know. Are you ranting? <laughs> I mean, it's it's we've learned these things over the last 50 years. Come on. But But I think this is where... I think what I think reading your book is there's a freedom of just letting go, right? Because I think people get uptight about how things have to look manicured and have to look this way. And I think with your book, there's a certain amount of freedom that you're giving us as human beings to coexist, which actually is easier. It's so much more fun. And prettier. It's fun. It is. Mm. And I think, you know, I, I, I've heard from a few people who say, you know, I live in a um, an area that won't let me do that, uh, or I mm. did that and my town fined me. But even in mm. the more visible types of properties or someplace that's, you know, more urban than mine, you can still do this. Um, you have to, you have to maybe. Um, plan a little more, you know, have a, a manicured strip in the front of everything or um, or something mm-hmm. like that. Or, you know, there's these, this idea of adding cues to care. So that means, uh, you know, putting up a bird, bird bath in a visible spot or a nice container of something, something that shows that there's intention in the landscape, a path. Um, because a lot of times what people get scared about when they don't understand this type of gardening is the heights of plants and so Mm -hmm. you know if you're just attentive to that you can even put brush piles in a small property put it in the corner and um, what I get kind of one of the reasons that I wrote the book um, the way that I did and I I wanted to combine two different subjects uh, based or themes basically of ways to welcome uh, wildlife 
um, and then also ways to resolve conflict with them when when they do arise or prevent conflict because a lot of wildlife advocates and uh, rehab centers and such historically have told people don't put those brush piles down and um, you know don't you know keep a more manicured landscape because they're worried about someone coming and just killing the snake that wants to use that brush pile or getting mad at the chipmunks getting in their garden and and so um, the advice has often been to just sort of take everything out. And then on the other side, you have native plant advocates who often don't really understand those mammals. And so you have people who are working on behalf of the mammals and then people working on behalf of the birds and bees and butterflies. And like you said, it's all a whole system. Each each type species is inevitably kind of making habitat for someone else and um, in different ways, you know, um, like ants plant wildflower seeds and um, deer prune down some uh, tree tree uh, saplings so that twig nesting bees can get in there and nest in the holes. And um, there's lots of neat examples like that. Mud dauber wasps will um, create those sort of organ pipe nests under decks and such. And Membership fees apply after free trial. Cancel any time. Can I be real for a second? That goal you have to exercise and eat better, you really can do it. But nobody is going to do it for you. And nobody has to because you can do it if you have the right tools and a community that cares about helping you get results. And that's us, Beachbody. It's as convenient as your TV or laptop, but you need to decide that you're worth it. Let us help you succeed. Here's how. Go to Beachbody.com to claim your free membership and start feeling great. In honor of Black History Month, raise a glass to Black-owned brands. Drizzly, the go-to app for alcohol delivery, has one of the largest selections of Black-owned drinks to explore. From a top-shelf whiskey to an artisanal twist on a Caribbean classic, get these drinks delivered right to your door. Download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com to find your new favorite. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y dot com today. They're very solitary and gentle and they look scary, but they're not. They won't even come near you if you go go to their nest and they just uh, stock their nest with spiders. And then when they're done with that, um, native bees, different species of native bees go and use that nest that need cavities. And so it's like a whole system of um, things in nature that often we're told to take down or tempted to take down because we're afraid of them. But then we're, we're just disrupting so many little lives Um, did we lose each other? Okay. So, um, let's see. What else? Oh, and squirrels actually also, uh, a, a lot of people get upset because they go into their bird feeders. But squirrels, um, uh, squirrel nests actually also create habitat for bumblebees because bumblebees often use abandoned rodent burrows and birdhouses. Um, bumblebees also nest under leaves on the ground, so it's really important to leave your leaves and um, or the, rather they overwinter there and, and sometimes create nests there at the ground layer. And so it's just looking at all of these things with the idea that um, you know there, there might be something going on that you're not even aware of and and it's best to maybe look up if you see that mud dauber wasp nest and you don't, you're afraid of it and you don't quite understand it. And you can find good information um, in books and online. And it's important, though, to understand how to discern between information coming out of pest control companies, nuisance wildlife control companies that want you to kill everything because it's in their interest um, to have you do that. And, um, and then, but but then looking at some other sites that are more humane, like the Humane Society of the United States and uh, other places like that. Um, so in general, um, as long as we're talking about bees, what I, what I advocate for is being a, a wild beekeeper. And, um, and that means, you know, a lot of people 
they don't really know much about bees beyond honeybees. And they don't understand that we have nearly 4,000 native bee species um, in North America and possibly some that we don't, haven't even identified or named yet. And to help those wild bee species, uh, we need to do something a lot different than provide a hive uh, and be a honeybee keeper because none of our native bee species nest in hives. Like I mentioned, they nested in, in, um, in twigs and in holes in the ground and uh, under leaves. And so if we're um, keeping our species too manicured, they're not going to be able to find those spots. And, um, and also, while we're on the subject, um, you guys had asked about the, um, the uh, hummingbird moth before we got on the call here. And I posted a picture of the hummingbird moths that have been in my yard recently. And I think there where you are in Tucson, you've got um, sphinx moths as well. Hummingbird moths are kind of sphinx moths. And I think you have the white line sphinx moths, which we have here. Um, they're really beautiful moths. They come out during the day. Most moths are flying at night, but these are um, diurnal moths and they look like hummingbirds. So people are very attracted to them. You don't often see them in a lot of gardens. And the reason is not just that the gardens don't have enough flowers. Um, that's one, one reason because hummingbird moths have a long proboscis, a long tongue, and they do need uh, flowers with um, uh, uh, long corollas that they can um, put their proboscis in and access nectar from. But um, they also, uh, when they're larvae, when they're young and they're just at the caterpillar stage, um, what these hummingbird moths here uh, in Maryland do is, um, well, first they eat the foliage of native plants like coral honeysuckle vines. And that's a really beautiful, um, almost trop tropical looking vine. And they'll just, you don't really even notice the nibbling because that vine is so lush. And they'll subsist on that as caterpillars. And then they'll go under the leaf layer if you leave the leaves and they'll pupate under those leaves and overwinter there. And that is, I think, probably why we don't see as many because people, uh, if they're raking up their leaves, which they do fairly incessantly here, then they're going to be um, taking away those pupating hummingbird moths. Oh, I'm glad so, you're talking about hummingbird moths, Nancy. We've been trying <laughs> desperately to get back on air, and, and every little thing failed us, but we're back. I'm just Thank you. away. <laughs> Thank you for running our show for us. You're doing oh a great God. job. <laughs> so you're talking about hummingbird moths. Yes. I was just mentioning that um, when I posted those pictures today of the, of the hummingbird moths, which we have two kinds here, um, some people said in Texas that they didn't, they hadn't, they love those moths, but they don't see them very much anymore. And um, that was someone in the hill country there. And my mm -hmm. uh, thought about that is that a lot of people don't see them here either. And if they're just thinking about the flowers uh, that, that you're growing for pollinators, and you're not thinking mm -hmm. about their, the, what the young animals of these species need, then you're not going to see them. So the hummingbird moths pupate in the leaf layer, on the ground layer, and overwinter there. And then they emerge as adult moths in the next season, the next warm season. And so if you're taking away those leaves, which most people do here, um, then they're not going to, you're taking away the, oh. yeah, the, the, yeah. The pupae, and so. Oh, and here we saw them the first time when we lived out in Joshua Tree area in the California high desert, and oh, yeah. we actually thought they were hummingbirds, and we we're like, wow, no <laughs> way! And we couldn't believe when we found out they were moths, and moths are super cool. Yeah, I mean there there are nighttime butterflies in a way, but these go around even in the you know the mornings and everything, and they're super cool. And we have we have a special song for you with hummingbird moths in it. That's why I'm I'm glad you're talking about them oh, too. Oh, you they're do? New. I was going to ask yeah. you to have a song for me. You had a song for you had, I love the wine headed wine headed woman. That was awesome. <laughs> I know that was the mama's voice, but you have one called Pink Fairy Duster. 
oh, and wow. hummingbird moths. And it's from a friend uh, who who writes music on, out here in on the Sonoran mm-hmm. Desert. And the pink fairy duster is a native plant that we get here at the very start of spring. I you love know, that it's, plant. It's, yes. isn't it cool? Yeah. Is 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 it related to a mimosa tree because they kind of look similar? I mean, with that, a good could question. you? I don't know. I didn't look at the genus of it, or I can't remember. I'll have to look that yeah, up. Yeah, it's mm. it's. It's interesting. I want to go back to, I know we were talking about rocks and mulch. Um, something you posted on your Facebook today was, you, I think it was another article, I think it was the Washington Post, if I recall, because um, half my Internet doesn't work right now. But anyway, <laughs> um, it's oh, a miracle God. we're here, to be honest. But you talked about ground cover, and, you know, that's something Nancy and I would do. You know, when we had a, you know, we did a lot of gardening, and we really took our garden in Joshua Tree area and it was a an, an house that basically had a bunch of chemicals. You know, when you get, you know, how what happens in construction is that they really ruin your topsoil when they mm-hmm. build houses. And right. the people that had this house before us had not, they didn't understand, like they didn't garden and, you know. Um, so we were pretty much the first people doing it. And the sand was so hard. It was clay. And we really, when the monsoon rains would come out there, and they were pretty big, and we, or we'd have snow in the winter, and so it was very drastic. We we realized that aerating the soil really meant something, and composting. Mm-hmm. We did a lot of composting and amending of the soil in that way. A lot of horse poo, cow poo, mm-hmm. a lot of poo went into that soil <laughs> and digging in it <laughs> to do it. And actually, walking around the garden with an iron spike yeah. and a hammer to hammer through, just to mm-hmm. get some to air. get through the that what they call it the caliche layer. Yeah, that we did. Clay. Yeah. That mm-hmm. so the water could go down. But we grew things that would do vines, like even if you're growing like gourds and things like that. Like I look at what nature does. Mm. We took a hike a couple of weeks ago in our favorite place in, in Aravaca, south of here in Tucson, and all of a sudden all these gourds are growing. And I thought, we both thought they were melons. And I looked mm. them up on the Internet, and they're these gourds, Missouri gourds, and they stink. They smell like smelly people. And I was, like, I was like, man, we just started hiking. How do I stink? I stink. I came home and I Googled it and looked it up. And no, apparently they stink. And they really do. They stink. They stink. Well, the wow. And you thought it was a barbecue, Nancy. Someone was cooking meat. That's what you thought. <laughs> oh <laughs> like rotting gosh. flesh. I wonder, so I wonder if they stink because, I, I mean, they, so they weren't rotting. They were just, they were fresh and they stink. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They, they, the leaves of these gourds stink. And, um, I don't know if they do it because of the because they had all these bugs on it. And this is the thing. They, I'm going. Okay, summer is coming. Summer's here. The you know, nature is already doing its own ground cover. All these yeah. sunflowers are starting to grow wild. So in yeah. nature, nature knows about ground covers. So yeah, in, in our own yards, you don't. Sometimes we can't wait for that to just magically appear because we've you know destroyed our soil. Yeah. So when you go to buy things, what are you looking at purchasing for things like that, like a ground cover? And Because I know you're going native plants, right? Yeah. Well, since you mentioned stinky, I'll start with that. Um, we have Yay. <laughs> we have pawpaw trees here, um, and they're edible. And I, after 10 years or so, I finally am getting fruit this year, which is exciting. I mean, the animals will probably get to it before I do. But, um, but there's a ground cover um, called... Uh, wild ginger here and um i just learned that the the pawpaw flowers actually i think they're pollinated by um beetles and flies attracted to the Mm -hmm. the carrion smell and so what some people Mm. do is plant wild ginger under the pawpaw trees and that's a good ground cover anyway here um and they and the wild ginger flowers are also a dark red, and they also mm. have that stinky carrion smell. So they attract the pollinators that the flowers on the tree above them need. I thought that was really cool. Um, mm. And because otherwise people end up having to hand pollinate them if they don't have enough of those animals. But in general, the kinds of um, ground covers that I look for here are um, – Ones that are going to, a lot of times in nature, you know, nature pours a vacuum. And so in natural habitats where things are still intact, they're going to be, like you mentioned, Nancy, there's going to be um, different different Mm. root structures in the ground layer, too. And so um, they're going to grow um, either companionably with each other or if 
or some will overtake other ones. So I'm always experimenting um, with these mm. vigorous ground covers. And it turns out that a lot of them actually um, grow around taller wildflowers. And what the taller wildflowers will do is shade, is um, provide shade for some of these right. Uh, yeah, ground-hugging plants that that don't like the baking sun because we're not we're not the desert here, um, but we do have kind of uh, scorched earth in the summer if we don't have it covered in plants. So, um, mm. so I look for sedges. I look for um, something called golden ragwort, which has nice big leaves that shades out some of yeah. our invasive plants, some of the mm. seed germination from the invasives. If if you get uh, wild strawberry is a good one here. Um, if you get ones that grow quickly enough and they have dense leaves, then, then they're really great for, for um, sort of crowding out the invasive plants. And, uh, and, so, and I really, I, I never use Roundup, and I don't want anyone else to either. Uh -oh. Ooh, no. No. Um, but it's pretty ubiquitous here, even among ecological designers, and people, people use it use it mm. all the time and um Ooh. and so these other methods not only is it more sustainable just from the chemical perspective and what that crap is doing to the land and the animals and the plants but it's also if you if you spray a whole area of something or you pull it all out and then you don't replant it right away i mean especially if you mm. live like in a half jungle like we do here it's all those invasives are just going to come back so i I do sort of like the three R's is how I've come to think of it. Like with, um, with our factory farming campaign, when I worked at the Humane Society and our animal research campaign, it would be reduce, refine, and replace. So I think of like reduce, instead of reduce meat products or reduce animal mm -hmm. testing methods, reduce invasive plants and refine with, as you go with more native uh, natives, buy natives whenever you can. And then eventually, you know, start replacing the whole landscape and, I think what people get overwhelmed by is the fact that they think they have to do it all at once, but you don't, you know, you mm. do a little at a time and you'll see right away the results and the animals coming. You know, this is the, the interesting thing too, when you talk about native plants, I think sometimes I think we're getting better at it and understanding to grow native plants and they do take a while to get their bearing in the soil and, you know, get strong. But once they're strong and get established and rooted, they do really well. I do want to touch on this because buying plants, and you talked about marketing in the very beginning, and you touch about this in the book. I mean, your dad, it's so funny because when Adam Roberts, our mutual friend, who Adam Roberts is yeah. a compassionate conservationist who comes on our show every month, and he was on our show talking about, you know, getting out in the backyard and reading your book, and that's how we connected. And, you know, he was on the show, and we're like, oh, we're talking gardening. Normally it's like all these hardcore wildlife trafficking issues. Right. Like, <laughs> we're like, okay, no ranting is going to go. And next thing you know, both of us went off. You know, it's like, Nancy's off, I'm off, you know, and Adam's like, okay, great. But Membership fees apply after free trial. Cancel any time. Can I be real for a second? That goal you have to exercise and eat better, you really can do it. But nobody is going to do it for you. And nobody has to, because you can do it, if you have the right tools, and a community that cares about helping you get results. And that's us, Beachbody. It's as convenient as your TV or laptop, but you need to decide that you're worth it. Let us help you succeed. Here's how. Go to Beachbody.com to claim your free membership and start feeling great. One night, one goal. Stop suicide. Register today for The Overnight and join thousands in Washington, D.C. on June 3rd as we walk 16 miles from dusk till dawn to stop suicide. Start your journey today at theovernight.org. <laughs> yeah. But the, the, the plant industry, and it was that the first time, I think, on our show that we really got to, to talk about it, you know, because... I don't think people realize how bad the industry is, and we were part of it unknowingly uh, when we first started our shows. And yeah. once we realized how bad it was, I w it was horrific. I mean, it, it, makes, it makes me sick thinking about it. It's, you might as well have, it's the same as factory farming animals and, and what's going on with the plants. And you understood that mm -hmm. with your, your, your upbringing and having to change how we look at things. But the marketing... And what's going on yeah. is pretty, it's pretty bad. And so we have to be, just how we choose our food, we have to be aware of how we purchase plants. 
Exactly. I mean, a lot of people, science didn't really know either until the last mm-hmm. 10 or 15 years. And so I I understand why people didn't know before. What I have a problem with is people who know now and just say, well, um, I just want to keep planting what I want to plant because it reminds me of home or it's pretty or, or things like that. And even if you're not being um, thinking of other species, those reasons don't really um, hold up anymore because you can get so many native plants that are really, really beautiful. And I think what a lot of the general public doesn't realize now is that um, when I talk about invasive plants, I find that sometimes people actually think I'm talking about plants that are, you know, aggressive in my own garden. And I'm, I'm not talking about that at all, of course, I'm talking about plants that crowd out natural wildlife habitat and leave your garden in the belly of a bird and get pooped out somewhere, you know, 15 or, or 150 miles away. And those are the invasive plants that the wildlife are dealing with. And some non-native plants are really, really harmful to, to animals mm-hmm. now. And, um, uh, you know, um, just this past winter, some, um, Lots of uh, berries killed animals, and I don't think those are considered actually invasive, but they're not native, and there were bears found, a little whole bear family in, um, mm. in Pennsylvania that had eaten English yew, and they died instantly, a mom and her cubs. And in Idaho, there were antelopes oh. and moose and elk that ate Japanese, um, Japanese yew berries and died. Wow. And the Idaho DNR, to your point, they asked people to stop planting um, those stopped buying those, kicked them out. And there were landscapers interviewed in the media articles saying, well, we're still going to plant, we think we're still going to plant them because they make us money and they provide winter interest in the landscape. And it's oh, like, here we go. You can look oh at those God. pictures of all those poor dead animals and say that, you know, it's yeah, really. But, you know, there's, it's interesting. I have two press releases from our government. One is about um, eucalyptus trees and how they want to genetically modify and make sure that there's a lot of eucalyptus trees for people in America. And what do we think about that? So I replied, well, first of all, they don't come from this continent, so what are you doing? And one of the things they were brought into this country for was to drain up water. Drain the swamp. Drain the swamp, (laughs) yes. To drain the swamp. Now that we're all dying for water, you think you might want to rethink this 50-year-old, 60-, 70-, 80-year-old, you know, mindset right. of bringing in non-natives and genetically modifying. That's one. And then the other one from the same agency is about genetically modifying uh, what they call a killer moth. It doesn't kill people. It's not, you know, the moth man. Mm-hmm. It's a moth where the female, after mating with the male, eats the male. And mm-hmm. what, they, what they've what they done is genetically modified the female so that she cannot reproduce. Mm-hmm. And they think that this is a good solution rather than using pesticides. And they go, hold on a minute here. This is a native species. And when you take out that entire species, which oh my. is obviously what you're going to do, you have no idea what else you're doing that's, to the rest of the cycle. There are animals who eat that moth. There's other creatures who need that moth. And, and what's their reason? What's the reason uh-huh. is it attacking a certain crop or something? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so, right, there's so many other things you could do, like what are its predators? Yeah. Why don't you plant for its predators and have them visit mm-hmm. so they can eat it, the moth and eat the caterpillars? And, wow. It's just yeah, so when you know one of the places we need to really start when we're talking about you know just like when you're talking about raking up the leaves as opposed to leaving mm-hmm. them where they are because they serve a purpose, you know the worst thing mankind has ever done is interfere where we don't have the knowledge and right. you know like wildlife management and and we're going to manage wild areas, we're going to manage things. You can't manage without the education. Right. So maybe we should stop managing and study first. Right. Because there's so much of it, and it works on its own. That's what I think is so cool about your book is it it, it brings out that kid in me that gets me excited about 
you know, when you talked about little tents that are being built, like you've got a tent city on a plant on your porch. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, cool. But I didn't realize this is cool. Yeah. I always thought those were spider things because when you go hiking, I see that all the time, these like big white tenty mm-hmm. things. I always thought they were big spider webs. Now I'm like, wow, those could be butterflies and caterpillars yeah. and like that whole metamorphosis going on. So you really opened my eyes to that. But it's like I think that we as a society, so I'm generalizing, so I know there's a lot of us who aren't this way, we have lost that that excitement as, as kids and, and curiosity and that curiosity of what happens with what. So if that moth that Nancy goes away, Nancy, I mean, I mean, yeah. big blend, Nancy, gardening, Nancy, <laughs> the, the, you know, when we take one out, it really does have that reverse thing. And it does what I want to make this statement is it does affect human beings when we take a species out. Does it not? Well, yeah, I mean, in in ways that we can't, or you know, we can't always see, and so that's mm. that's a lot of the problem with 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 sort of the traditional methods of of horticulture, which were based on um, agriculture, mm. is mm. That there's a lot going on that's not visible to us, and so we tend to, you know, we're very we're very black and white thinkers as a species. And so mm-hmm. we don't really think about the nuance unless we, unless we actively start to be conscious of it and challenge our assumptions and things like that. And I mean, I think we all do that in different areas of our lives, but, um, but yeah, mm-hmm. the, the chain reaction of um, killing a species, sometimes you can trace it. And often mm-hmm. there's, you don't even, there's so many organisms, I mean, millions and millions of organisms in one little plot, and you, you, we don't even know a lot of them. I mean, there's like 20,000, um, mm. um, what is it, 20,000 new species being discovered each year or something like that um, in the, in the, in, in by entomologists and such in this country, and um, so they make up our soil. They're the ones who aerate it and and put poo in it. Well, I don't know about you, but I don't want a genetically modified anything mm-hmm. flying around. Well, uh, and Nancy, <laughs> no, I want right. to I want to really go don't. to when we buy our plants because this is something about yeah we're going to grow these things that aren't you know necessarily good because this looks manicured and this does this. Um, Okay, so native plants, absolutely you can get the you can get that look and you won't have you won't have such a big water bill. You know, you there there's they're hardier when, you know, storms happen because they're built for your local environment. And here's the thing that I remember about five, ten five, seven years ago, people out here in the desert started buying arcateos. Mm. You know, they're beautiful euphorbias out here that grow native in the desert. And people right. start buying these things thinking this is native from the big box stores. And everybody, you know who I'm talking mm-hmm. about. There's the blue one, there's the orange one, and then the blue and ready kind of orangey thing, right? So there's right. the three major ones doing this. And so here everybody goes out, oh, we're doing the native plant thing. Well, what was happening, It they were just taking them out of the wild. They were taking them out of the desert in Texas. Instead of it being cultivated locally, uh, these, the, and, I mean, they basically, you know how we have them go out and someone will clear-cut a forest. They were clear-cutting ocotillos for planting in people's homes, and it almost oh wiped God. out an entire hummingbird species. Yep. Wow. And so the store that said, and I, I don't want to get the wrong store, so I'm not going to say the name in case I'm wrong because that's rude. And wrong, but they did actually turn around like, oh, we're not doing that anymore because they didn't realize they just have a buyer that buys, right? Exactly. Well, yeah, it's like the neonicotinoid pesticides. You know, they buy from large Mm -hmm. growers, and so it's for them to stop getting those plants. They have to start, um, which are you know the systemic systemic uh, class of pesticides that are in a lot of the potted plants still, and you know, harm or kill bees through the pollen and nectar, and and they um, 
they have to work with this whole supply chain to to mm. start getting untreated plants, and that takes a long time. And yeah, that's why I don't recommend buying plants at those places for so many reasons. Mm. Um, and I think some of them are trying to get a little better. There's a little bit more line of native plants, but I don't know where they're coming from. And um, there's a whole issue of native plant hybrids and cultivars not being often as helpful as the local native species. And so, um, you know, they just don't, they, they just don't provide the same nutritional quality or their, their, their bloom time is different. So they're not there for when certain species emerge Mm -hmm. um, and expect that the the native version to be there. And so there's all this um, manipulation that we've done of these plants. And if there's, you have a native nursery um, in your area, or even there's a lot of good online sellers um, in different regions, they, that's the best place to start because um, more and more of them are paying attention to trying to get these really straight species plants. And um, mm. and so that's one step beyond just going somewhere and saying, hey, I want something native. But I think it's really important because there's also an issue of uh, some nurseries still selling plants that'll say things like U.S. native. Well, I mean, we might as well be 12 different yeah, countries in the U.S. at least, you know, yeah. and native here is completely yeah, different really. from native you know, where you the are. grows in Maine, and I'm going to plant it in Arizona. <laughs> Good luck. Right. Yeah. So yeah, It's interesting when you go to these big box stores, they have a native plant section. It's usually way at the back in the corner in full sun, and it's about oh, four feet by six feet maybe, with a few five-gallon plants that look just absolutely like they're not going to make it home in your car, even. Yeah. Well, so, and I, you no, know, but, it looks like they're not going to grow. Well, and you know, it's, it's, I'm glad you've mentioned that because in talking about buying plants, here's another thing that I started thinking about recently. I went to this wonderful nursery that's a nonprofit in Northern Virginia. Um, not far from D.C., and they work with um, the county, and the county gave them land and to have their nursery, and they do restoration projects, but you can also go and buy plants for your garden. And when you go there, if you know something about native plants, it's not that they don't look lush. They do. They look great. But to a person who may be used to going to a mainstream nursery or big box center, it's not like they're all sitting there in bloom. I mean, most of them aren't, right? So... Um, So you have to kind of have an imagination or know about it. And so I think that is a challenge with, I think there's some education for buyers to say, you know, they do want to come and get something that they can put in right away and look good for their party this weekend or their, you know, family that's coming over or whatever. Um, And so it's sort of like eye candy. And, but if you, so you have to have some patience because like you said, they can get a. It, it's not that they. It's not that they take long to actually adapt. I mean, they can adapt pretty much right away. You put their native plants in, and usually, if you, if you just put them in native soil, they'll, um, they'll. You need to water them and get them established in. But right. after, after a few weeks, um, you're good. And they still might not flower though, or get very big for another couple, two, three years. Um, but once they do, I mean. Then they're just going like crazy, and often they're receding, and you know, so it's a sort of um, not long-term proposition, but it's a matter of understanding that this isn't like insta landscape. It's not like a TV dinner, you know. Yeah, and but once it's established, I mean, any plant that you buy needs a couple weeks at least of attention, care, and water. Right. to establish itself, you know, because it comes out of a pot and they're always root-bound right. no matter what. And right. so you're you're tearing up the roots as you take it out of the pot, mm-hmm. and now it's like, oh, could you still look good? I mean, <laughs> it's like somebody pulling your hair out and saying, how come you look like that? And you know? Right, right. <laughs> you know, so you got to give it a couple of weeks. So if you're having a party, you should start a few weeks in advance, maybe. <laughs> you it's know, party planning well, with your plants. Yeah, you know, and... It, it, but once they're established, your workload 
goes down, your water bill goes down, and it looks nice, mm-hmm. and and it yeah. it's healthy. And I agree with you. Like you know, I always like this word manicured. The manicured membership fees apply after free trial. Cancel any time. Can I be real for a second? That goal you have to exercise and eat better, you really can do it. But nobody is going to do it for you. And nobody has to, because you can do it, if you have the right tools, and a community that cares about helping you get results. And that's us, Beachbody. It's as convenient as your TV or laptop, but you need to decide that you're worth it. Let us help you succeed. Here's how. Go to Beachbody.com to claim your free membership and start feeling great. This and a manicured that. That's man-cured nature. Oh, and I don't think we're in a position to do that yet. Mm-hmm. We don't know enough about it yet. Yeah, you know. And I'm not, you know, I'm not saying sometimes we, we, sometimes I suppose we have to do things like that. But certainly in your own garden, you don't. You don't have to bring in exotic plants that are invasive or ones that cost you a lot that will die because it's wrong zone right. even gardening zones are up to question now with with My, climate so change i wanted to mention that with climate change when we put the right plants back in our yards even patio gardens you know if you're in condos and townhouses it's like you know nancy and i how we live you know there's there's plants that you can plant and won't that help stem climate change by planting the right plants and using the right mulch i.e plants. <laughs> I.e. plants. Well, yeah, I mean, you would think that having more green is going to, I mean, there have been, there, there have been, there was a study showing, um, I think, I think it was by the NASA scientists that quantified how much turf grass is in the country, like 40 million acres, and, um, you know, showing that it is, it is a carbon sink, um, but how much more could it be if there were actual real like plants that actually like to grow here that don't need water and you don't no don't need fertilizing and all the fossil fuel um, that goes into that, which then, you know, is going to negate any, any climate change um, positive effects you're getting from turf grass. So, yeah, I mean, I would think that um, having a, having, having everything a lot more plant, I mean, plants are all plants are the answer for everything because, um, they, you know, the dead wood that animals use to, um, mm-hmm. they, they get, they get food and shelter from, from dead and live plants. And, um, you know, I think there's a real fear of, of plants and it's just because of what we're used to seeing in the landscape. And, um, and that's your point about, um, when you put the plants in the ground, um, that's been how they take, they can take a few weeks and everything uh, of care. That's why I also like to just let little spots go and see what comes up and then start to just identify what they are. And there's lots of great um, help. Even on Facebook, there's great plant identification groups and native plant societies are usually more than happy to help. And if those plants planted themselves or the birds planted them for you, it's been you don't have to do anything. <laughs> they it's want a to gift. Be there. It's a gift, and well, they, they they establish themselves, you know, which is really exciting. We have we, we have, have a weed growing. Well, 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 there's three. In, I need to join and, that group that and identified yeah, plant Yeah, there's thing. one pot that has a um, a plant in it that we, we purchased that's native to here, and then it came along in the soil with what one would call three weeds, not because they're weeds, but they're cool. because we don't know what they are. Right. And, <laughs> but they're green and have leaves, and they're pretty, and so we just left them because the birds seem to love them. And, yeah. you know, just because we don't know what they are, you would just like your first instincts, oh, that you don't belong yeah. there because I said so, let me pull you out. That's exactly but now we've right. left it in a... I'm hoping they're going to flower, and I think they just might at the end of the summer. Yeah. So then may, maybe we'll, you know, and maybe they'll become a valuable part of the of the potted plant. I know. <laughs> I just, I, I, <laughs> yeah. It's so, it's so funny because it's with a vine that is, um, it's using the so-called weed to wind up around the stem. Symbiosis. Of, yeah. yeah. So it, <laughs> It's helping the vine travel on to wherever the vine thinks it's going at this point. And the hummingbirds sing on the vine. Yeah, and they all love it. I do want to ask you this because 
you know, we talk about backyard habitats, and I know number one rule, water for the the birds, the critters, you know, even the snakes. Mm-hmm. Uh, water is so important. So you, you talk about this in your book about creating a home. And then a lot of people will go out and do bird seed and, and hummingbirds. Like, we do feed the hummingbirds, but we make our own stuff. But that's because of where we are. There's not there are some native plants, but it's not like you know. There's there's a certain level of where you have to make that decision. Yeah, right. But I see things where birders go crazy, and next thing you know, and I put this up in a birding group that I'm belong to on Facebook, a Southwest birding group, and I think it was Home and Garden or Beautify America. I don't know whatever like glossy magazine did this. Hey everybody, this is a fun thing to do. And it was like creating this big wheel of bird seed, and they were using gelatin. And one lady said, "Well, that does come from bones, and birds eat bones, you know." Mm-hmm. So, and but they're basically making a flour paste and using all these things. And I just was like, "This doesn't sound right." For I wish I could find it now. Yeah. For birds, and it just it just sounded. What do you? Why? <laughs> why well, are we doing this? Out here, it's like so. these big craft projects that people do for birds and i wonder how many of these are actually dangerous yeah and well, how and there's, there's, the, there's the effect on them and then there's the effect in in producing those products sometimes so you know like mm-hmm. sunflower seed um a lot of the sunflower seed goes into sunflower oil but um but when sunflowers are grown they um you know if too many blackbirds and such are coming uh, you know oftentimes they'll get shot or they'll get poisoned because their their farmers are preserving the sunflowers to sell for other birds and people and so like if you're buying those types of products i mean you might be hurting birds on the front end you know instead mm-hmm. of just planting sunflowers and planting other plants that have seeds that birds can come eat and so it is a balance. There's, I know what you're saying. If you live in a place that's been so, um, you know, uh, sort of City developed, um, yeah, yeah, and then you wanna you wanna help, and we do that in the winter time um, because we feel that we still don't, in spite of all our plants, there's not enough plants in the general landscape around here um, when it snows and everything, and birds can't get to stuff. But there's so many. There's a lot of research on the fact that it can change. Um, migration patterns or species dynamics, you know, and it can, um, feeding birds, relying on feeding birds can, um, can cause disease and people, conscientious people do clean the feeders, but there were instances in California and, and here on, in the East, the last couple of years of um, salmonellosis outbreaks in, I mm-hmm. think out West. And then here there was the conjunctivitis type of disease, mm-hmm. um, in certain species and so it you know and it, it just kind of um is sort of it, it's not the best solution and it's 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 good for people who um it's good for people to become to appreciate these animals mm-hmm. and it's it, it you know you, you get to see birds you may not normally see but i mean for example i mean we had a we had two acres of, of just almost all lawn and and now we don't now we have a lot of plants and we were sitting um, but on our patio last week, and a scarlet tanager came onto the site. <gasps> oh, and I, I've never seen one, and I, and I, 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 assumed oh, wow. that, I assumed that birders had seen them, but a lot of birders commented on my photo, and they were like, we've been in the forest and listened for the calls, and we can never find them. And I was, I, it really was a gift, and I think, I, but I think it's because of the plants, because we have. Yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, that's the thing, and that's what's so exciting is that you create this life force. It's like you're having a big party in your backyard, and it's so <laughs> cool. You know, yeah. it is. It's like here, it's like the you know the Mad Hatter's tea party with all these critters coming in, and to realize about these bugs and how they live. You know what what bugs bugs me? No pun intended, but is when they sell bugs in stores. When I think that if you <laughs> yeah. plant the right plants, you will attract the bugs. The ladybugs. And, and yeah. you know, it's like the same thing. Okay, so you go to everybody, the the freezing of butterflies and caterpillars. Oh, I know gross. you think all these butterfly houses are super cool to take your kids to. Well, you know what? Imagine your kid not having to take your kid anywhere, and they can see it right outside in your backyard, yeah. a butterfly, and watch the whole process natural. If yes. people realize that they're freezing the bugs. 
They're uh, freezing them. Terrible. Yeah. Uh, yeah <laughs> I'm now. Yeah. Well, and also those captive bred male animals can spread disease if they're released, and it's just it's just a, really isn't a good idea. And the cat and the ladybugs, a lot of them being harvested from the wild. Um, mm-hmm. Oh man. Yeah. I, just, I didn't know that. Yes, yeah, in California, and no, um, it's summer bred, but but the certain species are are, are harvested, and so um, you know. Adding plants that attract ladybugs, that attract aphids, that give overwintering sites to ladybugs, like penstemons, have basal mm. foliage that ladybugs like to go in in the winter. And, and there's a lot of um, ways that you can that you can just have these animals inherently in your garden. Yeah, and and um, learn. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. It's about learning, too. I mean, we get to see all these different critters and find out what they're about, which is exciting. But, Nancy, um, we're going to play your, your song for you. But before we go, and I appreciate Nancy and I both, um, as Big Glenn Nancy, we both appreciate you dealing with us as uh, monsoon in and, in and out go. But it's sunny, it's sunny out, but, you know, the, the Internet companies don't know about that. But, anyway, they have issues. So it happens during this time of year. It's like suddenly you're here and now you're not. Um, so thank you for dealing with that. It's, it's, we've had our trials on this show today, but we're still here. We're still making it through. Um, so thank you for dealing with that and, and being a good host when we weren't hosts. <laughs> I don't know so, if I was a good host, but I talked about bees. I tried. So <laughs> Right on. Cool. If you talk about bugs, we're all cool. But um, before you go, we, we this is garden gossip. So if you could – house sit anybody's house in the world alive or passed on whose house would you house sit so you can like mess with their garden so i can mess with it or just look at it or look at it mess with it do whatever you want oh i think i'd like to go to doug palmy's house he wrote this book called bringing nature home and um he has 10 acres in delaware and his book is uh the first one to really um quantify how many caterpillars baby birds need um, and the fact that native plants are pretty much mostly the only plants that are going to feed those caterpillars because they co-evolved with them. And Mm. that revolutionized the gardening movement. And he discovered it in his garden. So Mm, um, I still haven't seen that garden. I'd love to go just sit there and look at his, he has all these rare salamanders and birds and (gasps) salamanders. Mm. Really? And he used that to have, cool. I think it was an old hay field, and he just did it within like ten years. He added all this wow. stuff and let stuff grow. Yeah, that's so cool. That is really really cool. Well, thank you so much again, everyone. Uh, this is such an incredible book, and and we really think everybody needs to go and get it. Again, it is called Humane. Excuse me, The Humane Gardener: Nurturing a Backyard Habitat for Wildlife. Again, it's published by Princeton. Architectural Press. The author is Nancy Lawson, and you can go to her website, get involved, go be a hero, because you have that whole thing about people can be humane gardening heroes, right? Yeah. So that's like a, creating a community. You do it on Facebook and and yes. and connect with people across the country about this, right? Yeah. And if somebody wants to nominate a humane gardening hero in their state, I'd love it. I have five states under the belt so far, and I'm going to do 45 more. So cool. Right on. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. HumaneGardener.com is the website, and also on Facebook. She's on Twitter, Instagram, Pinterest, everywhere. The book's on Amazon, all those great places, Goodreads. Go go connect. Just go right to HumaneGardener.com. That's the best place. But here it is. We're going to play Pink Fairy Duster and Hummingbird Moth. And this is off of an album called Perfume of Creosote, Desert Exotica 1, and it's by Michael and Spider. And by the way, everyone, Michael will be co-hosting our show on Sunday. Good. We'll we'll need extra coverage for whatever <laughs> storm is happening on Sunday. But uh, he, him, and, and Spider um, have done so much music on our shows over the years. And um, but this is it's special, and it really goes with the Sonoran Desert. And so they made local music, you know, with local, you know, plants and animals. So wow. I thought that That's yeah, cool. it's not Maryland, but. Um, I thought you were talking about hummingbird moths this morning, and I was like, oh, I've got to play this song, and it's cool. So thank you so much. <laughs> thank you, guys. <laughs> you take care. Thank you. Here you it too. is, everyone, Pink Fairy Duster and Hummingbird Moths.
Membership fees apply after free trial. Cancel any time. Can I be real for a second? That goal you have to exercise and eat better, you really can do it. But nobody is going to do it for you. And nobody has to because you can do it if you have the right tools and a community that cares about helping you get results. And that's us, Beachbody. It's as convenient as your TV or laptop, but you need to decide that you're worth it. Let us help you succeed. Here's how. Go to Beachbody.com to claim your free membership and start feeling great.